Welcome back to Diabetics Doing Things. Very excited to introduce you to episode one of More Than a Diabetic. Today, we are going to be talking with one, two, three, four, five individuals from the diabetes online community. Amazing people who not only gave their time, but give up their uh, time for their and their platforms to lend their voice to people with diabetes of all kinds, but specifically black people with diabetes for the purposes of today's conversation. Our topic is medical racism, misdiagnosis, and stereotypes. And our five guests are Mila Clark Buckley. She's the hangry woman. Uh, Chelsea Rice, type one comedian. Taylor Johnson, Taylor Bedick. Shaw Struthers, type wonderful. And Dr. Roy Collins, who's Dr. Roy C on Instagram. Our five panelists today truly embody being more than a diabetic. And they really dig into these conversations. And I'm very pleased that we were able to facilitate these and lend our platform to it. Um, this episode is about an hour long, pretty in-depth discussion. After this intro, I'm going to play the introductions of each of our guests so that you can hear their voices and you'll be able to recognize their voice throughout. This is a panel. So our panelists will be talking to each other, to you, and to Eritrea and I, who is also here, even though I've been talking about this uh, the entire intro. No worries, Rob. Uh, we know it's a new format. We know it's a little different. We just asked a little bit for your patience and grace, but also this episode is just so, so, so good. I, it's honestly, I told Rob before, I'll say it again now, it is my favorite episode. I'm glad we're opening it up with it. There are so many small tidbits in here, stories that I just know that the people listening to this need to hear. Um, so I can't wait to hear what you guys think about it. And man, just let it play. Let it play. So if you're listening to this and you find yourself saying, oh, I really wish I could see our participants. I, uh, I'm having a hard time following who's talking. Uh, this is also available on our YouTube channel. So youtube.com slash diabetics doing things. So if you are wanting to see the visual experience, it's basically just a Zoom, but we've got it all set up for you on YouTube. So be sure to check that out if you want the full audio it's a great visual medium. experience. It's a great medium. If you go watch it, you can see me and Rob's faces, which is hilarious because there are so many moments where our faces just look ridiculous, but it's great to watch it on YouTube. And also you can listen to it on our site and everywhere that you listen to podcasts. So yeah, absolutely. No excuse not to do it. It'll continue to be live on Spotify, on Apple podcasts and everywhere podcasts are hosted. And ultimately, if you just want to hear me be really nervous about saying the right thing, you can really see how much we care, how much time and effort we put into this to make sure that it is representative of the people with diabetes that we are trying to represent and the stories that we're trying to highlight. And it's just me getting out of my comfort zone a little bit. So uh, feel free to give me any critiques about when I'm talking about racism uh, and how my voice kind of cracks a little bit. So I'm you know, just trying to make sure that I'm doing the right thing. I mean, somebody's got to put Rob in check, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, if, if that's all that comes out of this series, wow, what a victory. Uh, all right, that's enough talking from us. I'm going to let our amazing five guests introduce themselves. And coming at you is episode one of More Than a Diabetic, Medical Racism, Misdiagnosis, and Stereotypes. Welcome back to More Than a Diabetic. I am joined by an amazing panel of people all around me. And today... We are going to cover some very exciting topics, uh, mostly centered around misdiagnosis, medical racism, and microaggressions. So to kick off the conversation, uh, I have a stat for you guys, and I'd love to just pick this up and, and talk about it as a group. The risk of diabetes, here's the, here's the stat, the risk of diabetes is 77% higher among African-Americans than non-Hispanic white Americans. So 
certainly we all know this anecdotally just because of stereotypes, but are we as a diabetes community talking enough about the disproportionate assault on black communities by diabetes? No. Absolutely not. <laughs> nope, not at all. And I might, I'll go even further. We're not talking about uh, things such as sickle cell anemia either. Uh, things that are definitely pertaining to African Americans. We're not, we're not dealing with um, the the imbalances of, of proper healthcare and proper just attention to black and brown communities in general. Um, and it's got a long history of it. Um, so I think it's not, it's not just diabetes, it's just a, it's, it's the full gamut. Even, you know, as it pertains to you know, any type of health related um, issue as it pertains to the um, black and brown communities, the black and brown communities have been, haven't really been spoken to. Um, you know, you can, choose whether it's social media or just in um, you know, mainstream media, just in commercials you see on television. You don't see us in, you don't see us included. You know. Or if we are included, it's, it's almost tokenized. Like, it's almost like what these assumptions of us are in like the most extreme manners. Um, and then coupled with like on the other side of that, like not even having just like general representation. Like I think sometimes I'll look at, and, and I won't like name names, but I think we all know, you know, you look at a certain organization's website or you see kind of like the diabetes organizations that are out there saying like, we're representing people with diabetes, we're representing patients. And then every single person on their website or on their social media is white. And you're kind of like, where am I represented in that? And like, how are you getting information to a community that looks like mine if I'm not even reflected in the materials that you're distributing to people? So it's it's always really interesting too to hear stats like that that are so staggering and then come to a realization that like our community knows that and like that doesn't surprise us, but that would surprise like tons of other people. And when we talk about disparities, we're talking about differences in outcomes that aren't linked to anything that you would be expected from. So when it comes to both prevention and the actual healthcare that uh, black and brown folks are getting compared to our peers, it's just wildly different. And so that, that amount of access, that amount of information is why we have different outcomes and why we're unfairly um, having worse outcomes and living worse lives than the rest of us. I was gonna say, it's easy to make assumptions about the cause of some of those disparities. Um, but if you look at the data, even if you account for differences in socioeconomic status and income, um, the outcomes are still staggeringly worse uh, for black and brown communities than they are for similarly um, privileged uh, uh, people of other, um, of other ethnicities and races. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting that those differences start very early, because even if you look at kind of the stats with kids with diabetes or just kids with health problems, this starts really, really early. I think people look at us when we talk about it as adults and think your lifestyle choice has got you here. And I'm like, that's not true. But also, then how do you explain the same kind of stats coming out about children? Like they haven't lived long enough to make terrible lifestyle choices. So what's the 
what's the excuse? We often hear about unconscious bias. It's, it's become almost a buzzword in, in corporate circles and in workplaces at this point. But, but what it actually means in my anecdotal experience is that when I talk to young black patients with diabetes, you know, I'll go out of my way to try to provide them as much information as possible. One thing unfortunately I hear all the time is I didn't know that, or this is the first time I'm hearing, or I would, you know, wish someone else explained to me as clearly as you're explaining it. So there's that lack of information, that lack of care is what leads to uh, worse outcomes down the line. Well, I was, you know, and something just popped in my head just now. I don't know if any of you guys uh, saw, um, there's, there was an ad floating around on um, Instagram about Masterclass. And uh, Roger Mosley is like the newest um, instructor on Masterclass now. And he said something in that little, that little commercial that they made for it. He says, if you don't exist in the literature, you don't exist. And as much, and that kind of rings true to what we're talking about right now is like, when you don't see people of color in the ads, when you don't see people of color represented in the in the orgs ads, or you know, you see the JDRF and everybody in ball gowns and tuxedos, but you don't see them out in the in the community lifting a finger to try and bring these other folks in to the loop. And so it's like if you don't exist in that whole realm as far as like what people see, then yeah, we 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 don't exist. Even worse from a pharmaceutical standpoint, a lot of the studies that are done to try new medications and things that are helpful aren't tried in our populations. They're tried usually for middle-aged white men. That's kind of how it's been historically. And so we're not even 100% sure that all medication, this is not just a diabetes thing, this is kind of across, especially where I am as a psychiatrist, um, across med, uh, pharmaceutical classes, um, so we're not even in, entirely sure that, you know, what small differences are in our that we have genetically um, are going to respond the same, and so we need to be represented not just you know on social media and in brochures, but also like in the hard science uh, as, as we try new medications and, and see what we can do therapeutically. Medications, behavioral therapies, any kind of change in behavior and things like that were not represented at all. Um, I think I've talked about before eating disorders and diabetes, and just the absolute absence of Black people in that research is and I mean, Hispanic people as well, it's really alarming considering we have, we experience these problems at much greater rates than white people. And we're just, no one is addressing how we talk to people about this. What are some of the causes? Nothing, we're just absent. I think diabetes is a very particular aesthetic and we don't, it's not us. Yeah, I, I would completely agree with that. And I, I personally like sometimes find it really interesting when I do get like the outreach and somebody says like, we want to work with you in our campaign for XYZ. And I kind of ask them, you know, well, why? Like what, what attracted you to me? What is it that I portray? What is it that you're looking for or that you think that I have? that you want to put out there. And a lot of the times the response I get is, well, you're a person of color, you're a woman, you don't typically fit the like T1D look and feel and we just wanna put someone different out there. And I'm like, well, while that is noble, like there is more than just me and I am not the only person that like represents someone with diabetes that fits this mold for you. Um, and like think a little bit deeper about why you want someone who looks like me and think a little bit deeper about how many more of us are out there that are completely different from each other. And, you know, I think like a lot of us always talk about how 
black people are not a monolith. And so you can't just approach one of us and think that this one person who looks this way speaks for everybody in the community. Um, and, and that's also kind of like an issue within representation because people think like, okay, well, we checked the box. We have this one person, they look this certain way and we're done. We, we've checked our, we checked our checklist and like, now we don't have to do anymore. And the conversation never goes any further than that. And it's so unfortunate. And I'll pick on corporate America for a second here. Diversity, inclusivity, diversity, inclusion, DNI, the terms that we use in corporate America to define what we're talking about, representation, often are just, hey, we need to make sure that there's one black person in this campaign. And again, sort of seeing it at face value rather than what this person actually brings to the equation. I don't know. I just I just don't think people know truly what diversity means because they've never been called on it and they've never been held accountable to make sure that it happens. And I feel like, like as a like black community, we're always talking about like ways that we can be included or ways that we can be seen or have our voices heard and, and inserted into that conversation based on the merit and value of our voices, not just because of the color of our skin. But then I feel like the conversation has always been uncomfortable and this year in particular made it even more uncomfortable like all of us being at home seeing more stories of police brutality and people dying having that moment where people didn't know whether to post a black square and shut up or if they should actually say something and it i feel like especially now it's like kind of in our consciousness in a way that is like so obvious and it's not something that you can just like walk away from. And I think before it was acceptable to check the box. It was acceptable to say, okay, we have one person from each category and we have included them and we have done the work of inclusion. And, and I think people are realizing now, and especially like diabetes orgs and people who work in diabetes care and um, even medical professionals, like hearing that the Hippocratic Oath, I think has like an added line about like, racial disparities or like treating people how they should be treated regardless of race um and so like that consciousness is coming up and bubbling up to the surface more and more because it's inescapable like if you're not doing the work outside of checking the box you're not doing the work and people are starting to pick up on that and call it out um and i think people are facing more backlash for that not just because they're not doing the right thing, but because they're not doing the right thing genuinely. And like, it's no, it's no longer at a point where you can just like do nothing and get away with it. It's like, people are starting to notice that. Or even to do the bare minimum, like you just, it's not, it doesn't not fly enough. anymore. Yeah. yeah. It's not enough. It's not enough to have a panel and only have one kind of black girl on there. Like, it's just not good enough. You have to do better. Yeah. yeah. Ancient African-American proverb, there's levels to this ish. And it's not only <laughs> uh, bringing me to the table, right? It's also giving me a voice to affect change. And then it's not only giving me that voice, but will you listen to what that voice has to say, right? So we're, we're done with that level one. Okay, we see a black face there, or we're you know including this black person. We want to actually see that person have uh, an ability to make change, bring other people with them, and, and hear that you're going to uh, be responsible for that change. I've always yeah. wondered who drew the short straw to start sending all the emails out to the black diabetes advocates. They were just sitting in front of the computer like, okay, oh boy, how do I do this? How do I do this? <laughs> oh my God, how did I get here? 
<laughs> well, or you know, no, no, no. Like, not, you know yeah. they called their one black friend. Stop it, Chelsea. You know no, they no. called their one. That's usually that's usually been me all my life. It's like that's that's who I was. It's like well, that's Chelsea. He's the, he's not going to punch me in the face. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's interesting too because I I think people are like trying to come from a noble place with it, like trying to be inclusive, but you know, we saw over, I can't, I can't remember when it was, there was like some feature of like, you know, three women in the community at some point this year. And the fact that they had enough like sense to feature them and to say as Juneteenth, it was Juneteenth, I remember this now very clearly. The fact that they said, we can feature these women and we can use their stories to be able to like- Be relevant. Share more and be relevant with the diabetes community and do something for Juneteenth and have relevant content. But they did not have the sense to back them up in the comments section when people said the most absolute racist things to them and about them. And, and then they turned the comments off and it was just like, you you have to think it through the entire way like you have to be able to think like if i'm going to ask this person to put their their self out there and put their like body on the line essentially i also need to be there to protect them in some sort of way and they didn't have to like go and like tell every person in the comments that was saying racist stuff like you're a racist get out of here but they could have said like this is actually why you're wrong and here are stats to back it up here are anecdotes to back it up we don't like condone this kind of language and don't speak about another community member in this way. Like they had so many opportunities to do that. And I think that's like what I mean by going beyond checking the box, like, okay, sure, you highlighted three black women for Juneteenth, but then like, what did you do to protect them? What did you do to make sure that their stories were heard in the way that they wanted them? And then like, what did you do to dispel the myths and like actively I think like we like this has been thrown around all year but like actively be anti-racist like tell people what they said was wrong and why it was wrong and stand up for the people that you used in your features and I just like I don't think that like anyone thinks that they have to go that far and I think there's also some like naive thoughts in that as well like people just thinking oh well people won't be that bad online and it's like no people are their worst online <laughs> like that's the place that you have to do the most to protect against it um and so like you know people have noble intentions but then they don't think about what that backlash might be on the other end of it and then how it makes the the people on the other end of that feel because that's not a great feeling when you lend your voice to something and then people like trash it. Be apart. Yeah. 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 Is anybody else, was anybody else in those meetings? I'm sorry. Was anybody else in either of those two meetings with? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That um, you may as well have dropped a aluminum trash can down this flight of stairs. It's just that whole thing. Even I mean, the first one was just. I don't even know how to describe it, but the second one was so. The second one was a little, a little bit more disturbing to me because it seemed like some of that was kind of like um, they were looking for the non-aggressive black people that we that aren't going to just like maybe flip a MacBook in the middle of the conversation or something. They were just wanted like, oh, can we tone it down a little bit? Can we get? Is there anybody we can get here that's not going to like you know choke me online? And it was just. 
and I, a lot of time I just kind of sat back and I just kind of just observed. Definitely in the second one, I, I kind of sat back and looked at the difference between the two meetings. And and right now, all of you can pretty much, if you weren't even there, you know what the outcome was. Yeah, nothing, nothing. Yeah. But I think that's what we love talking about is tokenization yeah, in, as, a fact, as a whole, that's all it is. What I forgot what day that was. Um, they, po they posted something on Instagram and it was just like, it was, we're just back to square one here. You didn't hear anything we said. And um, so that's, that's pretty much, I was just like, you know, grab the soap and wash my hands of the whole thing. Cause I'm like, I'm done. Ah, I'm tired. I don't have to explain this anymore because it was too easy to understand what you haven't been doing and what you just did, which you didn't have to, you could have done better. I mean, and, and, and honestly, I, I, I don't get angry about it so much because I do understand that a lot of these folks, they've, they just never understood or never took the time to realize that, you know, black people are different from white people or Asian people. We, have our, we are different in many ways. And they just assume that, well, you can just put it out there and everybody will be fine. Nobody's going to, you know, say anything wrong about it. going to make, you know... But, but just like you said, if everybody gets Facebook strong and just want to say anything and they want to. And um, it's, what did you think? It's like, I just asked, what did you think was going to happen? You know, you know what the climate of this country right now. You see what's happening every other day. All you have to do is open up social media and see what people are doing. Today, you know, is a perfect example. Supreme Court says, new. No. Now everybody's flipping out, losing their minds. You know, this is this is where we are. So, what did you expect to happen? So, it, it it just it just proves how lost this particular organization and several other organizations are when it comes down to this. You know, I've been <laughs> I've shaken hands and we'd like to. You know, hoping you could. Okay, cool. Let me know. Crickets. But then, when everything happens over the summers, like, oh yeah, now okay. And so it's. It's just seriously, it's oftentimes just disingenuous, but at the same time, I, I get that they're just completely clueless. And you just have to sit back and just laugh sometimes. It's like, well, well, there they go again. Those crazy. Taylor, I see you, uh, you, you have a point to make. <laughs> I do, I do. Mila's heard me say this before, but I kind of vehemently disagree with always pitting the sole responsibility on our communities like flat out racism and anti-blackness problem on organizations. They are composed of people. They're composed of people like us. A lot of them have diabetes. This is a, we don't take the time as individuals to listen to each other and consider the perspective that black people have separate experiences. And it's also just a lack of providing context initially, especially on social media and then doing like Mila was talking about with follow through that a whole shenanigans on Juneteenth probably wouldn't have gotten as nasty had somebody thought it through and put in the simple work of doing infographics before. Like you've got people to do it. This isn't hard information to find about medical racism. I threw something together in a day and sent it to the person Chelsea is talking about we have a meeting with. I was like, I don't understand. Like we don't, you didn't think enough of the community that you were trying to represent to do a little research. 
it should have been that. But these are these are decisions that are made by individuals. They don't exist in some weird vacuum. And all of us are responsible as part of the community. I mean, Black people, we're not responsible for shutting each other out. But as a whole, members of the community are responsible for that. There are people who are sitting in rooms with each other where everyone is white and being like, oh yeah, dude, this is a good idea. Like, this isn't orgs like we say orgs like they're ghosts and like we can keep yelling at them but they're not necessarily that's not going to make them change it's going to take people every single person being like oh wait no that's not that's messed up like we've got to think a little more and people don't we're we do it occasionally when it's trendy but not consistently yeah and a lot of times like it comes down to us like doing it for each other before uh-huh. so many other people chime in. Like I think Taylor and I are prime examples of getting, a, I don't know if I can say shit, but getting a lot of shit online uh, just because of the way we look and the way that we portray ourselves like openly and very outspoken. And like, I remember I wrote an article about health disparities in the black community, specifically with diabetes. And I loved the article. Like I loved researching it and getting to write it. And an organization that I work with all the time posted it and it literally wasn't until like a lot of y'all went onto their post after people were leaving racist comments and you guys like backed me up and defended me it wasn't until after that that somebody from that org posted from their page and said like we don't condone these kinds of comments and you know we don't want people to um leave these kind of comments but also here are some stats like from the NIH and from government agencies that back up everything that's in this article that she wrote but it took you guys to first be to be the people to kind of first like throw the stones and push back and that to me like speaks volumes I think about like how we support each other um and and I don't know if a lot of other communities have to do that or have to be as vigilant as we do to be able to say our piece and and be outspoken online. But it's so unfortunate. Like I know every single time that I'm about to post something, I'm always like, okay, what yep. are the ways that someone's going to come at me? Who's going to tell me I need to go on a diet? Who's going to tell me that like I represent diabetes terribly? How am I going to respond to that? And at first, like. I would be annoyed by it and like really hurt by it because I was like, I'm doing the best I can like anyone else. And now I just throw it right back. And like, I don't go back because I'm like, if you took the time to leave this publicly, you wanted people to see it. So I want people to see your response right Run now. me all the smoke, run me all that yeah, smoke, like all of it. All the smoke because like, I'm not gonna sit here and like, and be criticized for something that like, if it was a, a genuinely like, uh, I don't know, like a genuinely good criticism of like something that I maybe didn't say or something that I didn't do. I feel like I can accept that. But when it is literally like throwing stones based on being a black woman with diabetes, then it's kind of like, I stop there. And like, I'm about to read you to the end of the earth because like you don't get to sit here and, and throw criticism that has no basis. Um, well, and I think uh, Chelsea, I'm going to steal this down the road. So people get Facebook strong, they get their Twitter fingers going and they, you know, say things that are just flat out wrong. And they're, you know, and also racist or, and like, yeah, please publish publicly a racist sentiment uh, on my page. I, you know, that like, congratulations, you played yourself, but I, I do want to focus on the community aspect because I think that's something that this year I've also seen, um, more on the front 
uh, on the front line, so to speak, less like kind of behind the scenes. Um, and I, I want to ask you guys, and I want to start with Shaw, uh, because I think with your 26 years, you said earlier, living with type one, most of your life, I imagine each of you though, experienced isolation as a black person with diabetes. And I want to know what, what it means to you guys each personally to be able to have a community linked together by the internet of other black people with diabetes and like what, what that community is like for, for you and others. Yeah. So <laughs> I was diagnosed in 94. I met my, I met, I met my first other black person with type one diabetes, uh, the summer of 95 at diabetes, uh, summer camp. Um, and then I didn't meet another one until like 2012. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it was super, super isolating. Um, and I'll say that, you know, meeting folks like folks like the, the folks that are on this call tonight um, has been has been fantastic, has been awesome. I, I am appreciative and thankful that um, online communities like Facebook and Instagram, while they can harbor lots of horrible, um, can also help support lots of goodness. Um, and that, that's, that's fantastic because yeah, there's like a slim to no chance that I would have ever met any of these people in, in, in life or through work or social groups or anything else, um, had it not been for, you know, some of these platforms. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the best part. Um, I will agree. I'll, I'm gonna take it back real quick because something that both Taylor and, uh, and Mila mentioned earlier, um, about the organizations. Um, yes, they are made up of people. And it's one of those things where it's like complaining about what Congress is doing. Like you can complain all day about what Congress is doing, but until you actually call your specific congressperson or senator um, and write and email, um, like you're not doing anything productive. So like these organizations that are claimed to represent us and the, the companies that make products for us uh, at, the, at the same time, like they're made of people and there are specific people who are in charge of PR and communications and designing the pamphlets that go out and everything else. And until, you know, you start calling those specific people out, like good for us. We know who the president of, you know, certain uh, diabetes led or diabetes uh, uh, research organizations are. We know how to find them. Um, with some relative ease, we can call them out on things and be like, hey, you, um, this is not how y'all should have handled this thing. Um, what, are, what are you gonna do next time to do this better? Um, but the challenge with that is people are lazy and it's super easy to just toss something into the internet and wipe your hands of it and assume that it'll be fine like doing the work to actually think about how something can affect the people that you're, you know, supposedly trying to support um, and do the work to prepare the uh, 
the, the background research or uh, analytics and things that you actually probably already have on hand and you're using for other purposes. Um, taking the time to do that takes some work. Um, and it's just, it's unfortunate, it's sad that uh, it doesn't seem like it's worth the effort for the people that are part of your community or the community that you claim to, uh, to represent. I, I want to talk about this because I think this, the, the personification of organizations and uh, the relationships that we all have individually with, whatever, whether it's chapters, whether it's diabetes or not, like the people behind companies, organizations, what have you. I, I have this management principle that I abide by that most people don't do a bad job on purpose. And that most people, when they leave their house or when they used to leave their house, when they log onto their computer during the day, they want to do a good job because that's just sort of how people are wired. Where they really get sideways is when they are asked to do something that they have no idea how to even start doing and they occasionally get analysis paralysis. Now, I don't want to sound like I'm absolving these people of the hard work like you're talking about because I think all the information and I think Taylor is, uh, I, I will just retweet it forever and ever, like the information is out there. You, you can, within a few Google searches, get all the information that you need um, as an individual. You don't have to have a black friend that can point you in the right direction. Google can just be that for you. Um, and so I think, you know, where, when I talk to these organizations, when I go to these rooms where, cause I've been in rooms with diabetes where all the people are white and it's just really clear that nobody else notices like uh, that, that's, that's a normal thing, a normal everyday occurrence for the people in those rooms making those decisions because their lives are homogenous. They hang out with the same people groups at work, at the country club, at the, in the neighborhood, at the HOA, wherever, and they don't see a difference. Um, it's in point why people didn't even know what Juneteenth was until 2020, which will always tickle me. Wow. Yeah, uh, like it was mind blowing. People were going crazy. Like, wow, did you guys know that the news took this long to travel? It's like, yeah. Um, I, I think that with black anthems, it's like the what? <laughs> they get all baking that up just right now. <laughs> Amanda Seals had to tell us about the black anthem, y'all. Really, um, but I think that okay, so. With us talking about organizations and just the racism that we experience as an online community with diabetes, I think it's, I think that the intention of the white people isn't bad, but the impact is so evil if you think about it on a larger scale, because what we're really here to talk about is medical racism and people die because of some of these okay. decisions. So something that Taylor was saying was like, you know, these are individual people who do this that is the same in the medical community. So it's the same, it's literally the same action. It's just a different level of impact. Like it impacts us, yes, when an organization does it, but when a pregnant black woman is telling a doctor that something's wrong and the doctor doesn't believe her because she's black, now it's this whole other nefarious thing. So the stakes are much higher. Um, so when we think about racial misdiagnosis and things like that, especially some of the people in this group have been through that. I know Taylor and Mila specifically, let's dive into that. I want to talk about that. And, and even like above that, like outside of diabetes, maternal mortality in black mothers is three times higher than white mothers. Like, right. Like that's don't even have to Google anything else after that. That's like, that's, that's enough to, that's enough of a starting place. So let's hear about it. Misdiagnosis, like face value, a black woman, slightly overweight, 
walks into an endocrinologist's office or a primary care with diabetes symptoms, and the diagnosis is almost always type two diabetes. Walk and, it back. Uh, I was a child. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was a child. I was a not overweight child. It's and I was fascinating, <laughs> like how to me, how how that can happen and how it can happen so often. Um, because like I genuinely, and this probably comes from just like a place of again, being kind of naive, but I was like, man, like I've never really heard this happen to other people. And then I told a few of my friends in the DOC and namely like connected with one of them who she was like just going, getting over like a year of going through it. Um, and, and other friends who told me, I heard your story and to me, it doesn't sound like type two. And other people who said, um, I really think you should get an GAD antibody test. I think you should ask for it. And I just said, no, like my doctor's telling me I have type two. I have a family history of gestational and type two. Like the, no, it makes sense to me. I look like I have type two. I probably have type two. Um, and like, it wasn't until just getting to a point of being like endlessly frustrated and restricting my food to a point where like I wasn't eating because I was like, this is the only way to get my blood sugar down or like not knowing, having like fatigue of taking insulin, being like, I keep gaining weight every time I take insulin. So I shouldn't take it because I know it's going to help my blood sugar, but it's going to like mess up my insulin resistance and having like all of these really terrible thoughts. And then finally, like getting to a point where I was so exhausted from asking my doctor over and over and over, can you test me for GAD? Like I was diagnosed when I was 26 type two, just like I don't think it makes sense for me. And I feel like you ignored my symptoms and looked at other symptoms in favor of, of the ones that you ignored and getting the no over and over and over and being like, well, I'm not a doctor. So I don't know, like my doctor knows better than me, but then finally going to like, it took me going to a black woman doctor who got to a point where like we got my A1C to like six and a half and like it was good. And then three months later it shot up to 10 and she was like, I really don't know what else to do because like, I don't want to put you on more medication. I don't want you to like suffer. Like I don't want you to have high blood sugars anymore. And she was like, I'm a great doctor for your primary care but I think you need to go to an endocrinologist. And it took her being like, like literally having the humility to be like, we've done all we can do here. Like, let's send you to someone who just knows more because we'll find out more. Like if you do have type two, we'll just know how to proceed a little bit better. But if you don't, she, and she was kind of like, I don't really know the answer. So like, I don't want to tell you what to do, but going to the endocrinologist then who was like also a person of color, instead of asking me, what did you eat? What, like looking at my chart and looking at how much I weigh or saying like, okay, what are you not doing? He literally sat down and like looked me in the eye and said, tell me your, tell me about your diagnosis. And I want to know how you went from 6.5 to 10%. And I want to know kind of like, what are your thoughts on it? And he didn't assume anything. He asked me point blank, like, I want to know what you think. And then at the end of that conversation for him to say, okay, let's test you for GAD because I think you have LADA. Have you ever heard of LADA? Let me explain it to you, which was like something that nobody ever did was explain. This is type two diabetes and this is what causes it. And this is what happens. And this is how like your body reacts to the medications you take. And here are the medications you're taking and why, like I never got the whys behind anything. Um, so then like a few years later to finally be tested and finally have it confirmed that I was doing everything I could and it wasn't working because I didn't have the right diagnosis and 
that I potentially like spared myself from DKA or going to the ER or having a hospital stay because I didn't have any insulin in my body at some kind of point. Like if I would have gone on this long, you know, or longer, it could have been worse. Like the outcome could have been totally worse. Or like I'm of like childbearing age, I want to have kids. And so if I were to have gotten pregnant in that time, like I could have had terrible complications and pregnancy. Oh like there's just so many factors and like so many things. And it all came from assumptions. Like it didn't come from my doctor initially actually listening to me. It came from like, oh yeah, I, I see a patient just like you every single day. They all have type two. You look exactly like that. And so here's a bunch of medication learn to take insulin and I'll see you back in three months and like not even having a conversation about what to do next and like now knowing that like that's not unique like that happens to so many people of color it like frustrates me to no end because I think of like all the times where I was like blamed for my diabetes or I was told like you're doing just like such a bad job of taking care of yourself when like I couldn't have done anything different and I'm sure there are so many people in that boat who feel like they're doing everything that they can and then they have no lifeline or no help. And I am only lucky, like, that's it. It's just luck that I had a doctor who was good enough to say, I can't, I can't help anymore. And like, we need to take you to somewhere better so we can get more answers. And like, if I hadn't had her, I probably would have just had a doctor who said like, okay, we're gonna keep you on these type two medications or we're gonna up those dosages and give you more because it doesn't seem like it's bringing your blood sugar down and we're not going to like ask any more questions or seek anything else because clearly you're not doing like I think people with type 2 are always labeled as like you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing or you're not trying hard enough non-compliant um, yeah and the conversation <laughs> right there and that's the only conversation and it's never like tell me about what you think is going on and like how else can we help you or what else can we do and it's always on the patient to like right prove I'm not just lazy. <laughs> like I'm really trying here. So, and it's, de it's detrimental. Like, I think, you know, that's why you see that like rise in the number of complications or people who are, you know, or, or like the question sometimes isn't asked, like what, re what access to resources do you have? Who do you have in your life that can kind of like help you navigate this? You're kind of just left to figure it out. And I'm like a pretty persistent person, but most people are not. And so if you take what is given to you at face value, like you would never seek out anything else. And that's like a huge detriment to your health and your life. Yeah. So like, again, that's a doctor being super lazy. Like they didn't take the time to do the work and f actually make a, a, a credible diagnosis. They're like, eh, close enough. Type two. Right, like we don't accept that level of performance for lots of other jobs. Like if you're a pilot, you can't just like point the plane kind of westward and be like, yeah, we'll get to LA. Um, you actually have to like point it directly to the place that we're supposed to go and actually land it um, in order to be considered, you know, that was a good job. Um, so um, I mean, like we're glad that you, you know, you had um, that other PCP that was, you know, diligent enough to recognize, hey, I don't know everything that is going on here. And I think you should get, you know, some more expert advice. Yeah. Well, I think, I think there's an think assumption too of authority figures that, of course, they have my best interest in mind. Uh, of course, they 
thought of this thing. I'm not a doctor. I think you said that a couple of times, Mila, like I'm not a doctor. I I'm supposed to trust my doctor that they know what's best for me or they're, you know, looking and leaving no stone unturned, so to speak. Taylor for something that Mila said was really interesting to me. She said that, you know, that doctor saw patients like her all the time, but for somebody like Taylor, and I really, I'm really interested to hear hers when you're a child with diabetes, Mm -hmm. it's, it's a lot of white kids. So uh-huh. for a doctor to not see a black child all the time and to still be like type two, like. Mm-hmm. Immediately. So I was diagnosed at 15. I was a cheerleader. I worked out with the basketball team. I was super in shape the whole nine. So like I wouldn't, and by the time I was diagnosed, I had lost so much weight. My pants were literally falling off and like teachers were concerned. Um, went to the doctor and she was like, oh, with your family history, it's gotta be type two. It's really interesting to hear Mila say that she got insulin. I did not get insulin for a year in almost. <laughs> um, I did. I had to fight to get insulin. Um, that was, and when I finally got insulin, I was told if you would just eat less, you, and worked out more, you would need insulin. You're getting insulin for something you can control with diet and exercise. My diagnosis didn't actually change to type one until I was in college, until like I left to go to college. So almost three years later, um, my pediatric endocrinologist was awful. <laughs> I used to cry every time I went in because the very first thing would be step on the scale. You've gained five pounds since you were here last. What the, like, what the F are you doing? And those, that was basically the extent of my appointments. And that went on for a really long time and like no matter what I did I could not get my numbers down like obviously now I know why but at the time it was just like it wouldn't work and when I finally got insulin I got Lantus which I now know I don't react well to it does not it just doesn't work for me um so yeah I sat with my A1C at like a 10 12 for almost two years she yeah, the focus of my like whole pediatric healthcare was my weight. It was my weight. It was you need to be thinner. And I mean, I'm sitting, so obviously you can't tell it, but my grandmothers both have like 10 kids. They're very like sturdy women. I am, I'm, I'm fairly sturdy. Like it's not it's just kind of how I'm built. There is no, there is no dieting away my body, like the shape of my body. And that is what she wanted. Um, I didn't actually get decent diabetes care until I was 25. And it's interesting that Mila mentioned getting pregnant because around 20, I was in a relationship. I thought it might get serious. I knew I didn't want to have kids before 30, but I was like, we've got to get what's going on with my body under control. That was at 25 was the first time I had walked into a doctor's office to talk about diabetes and someone didn't yell at me about my weight. Uh, she was just like, um, we need to figure out what's going on with your insulin because you're not getting enough. Like something, something is wrong with your ratios. Like this isn't a you problem. But before that, it was, you have to be sneaking food. That was a assumption my endo made a lot when I was a kid was that I was sneaking food. I wasn't sticking to a, uh, my dietitian's plan. I wasn't exercising, just all kinds of wild things. And if she had ever had a conversation with me and like my mom, she would have learned very quickly that it wasn't true but she just, it didn't occur to her to take the time. Hmm. Um, or an insulin pump, looking back now, a pump would have been really nice. But again, it was one of those things that was kind of held over my head and it was like, if you get a pump, you failed. 
if you get a pump, it's because you suck. Um, so yeah, yeah. Those, those tidbits are interesting too, like using medication as a threat. Like, I feel like that was the first conversation I ever had with my doctor. He said, if you, if I have to put you on insulin, it means that you are ruining your life. Like you are not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And so I was so resistant to it at first. And now knowing that the insulin, same thing as you, Taylor, I was using like Humulin 7030, which sucks. Um, horrible to have to like plan your day around your insulin for every meal, every exercise, everything. But, um, and that was my first experience with insulin. So I was like, oh, hell no. Like, I'm right. not taking this. I'm not using this. Like, this doesn't help. Um, but well, like having those threats held over your head, like if you, if you have to use insulin, it means you're a bad diabetic. If you have to yeah. take this oral medication, it means that you're not taking care of yourself well enough and you're having to use this as a crutch to make you better. And it's like, mm -hmm. those are just tools and we all have different bodies. And like, if our bodies require these certain tools, it doesn't mean we're any less good or bad as a patient it just means our bodies need the help that it needs and like nobody ever tells you that and so you get like kind of scarred a little bit and and there's like that little bit of like I don't know like I hate to even compare it to this but like a little PTSD I think um yeah. it's like a traumatic. real trauma yeah it's, yeah it's traumatic I mean even now like I've talked about this before like I it's weird to talk about diabetes things and not have like a visible insulin pump or something like that because I always feel like I have to prove that I'm type one enough because clearly I don't look it, right? My doctor didn't think I looked it. I've shown up to the other like diabetes events and people assume that I'm type two. So I'm like, no, you've got to like do all the things to signify. So it's just, it is traumatic and it kind of never ends. And it also, just, it takes a real toll on your physical and your mental health. Well, I want to talk about this for a quick second because something that I've going back and looking back at my experience with diabetes uh, and Eritrea can, can tell most of this as well, I think, because Children's Medical Center in Dallas is a, like a top five endocrine, pediatric endocrine hospital in the world. So I think there's first that, that layer, but walking back through key moments in my life and revert and thinking about reversing my, or, you know, changing my race to black, would this, would this uh, language and encouragement been used the same way it was given to me at diagnosis because those first 15 minutes of your life with diabetes are i believe now after interviewing like 300 people some of the most important moments in your entire life how your relationship with diabetes is set up from the get-go informs at least the next three years if not more of your life and so for me i got like everything in your life is within reach everything you want is within reach just take care of your diabetes so i'd love to talk to Dr. Roy really quick about bedside manner there, because I, I question now whether that conversation happens the same way if I'm black. Yeah. So, you know, in my, in my training, I obviously take a lot of special interest in, in talking to diabetics. It's not even my specialty. I'm, I'm in psychiatry, but like certainly throughout pre, all my pre-medical training and in medical school, you know, a lot of time shadowing and being directly involved with, with endocrine care. And if I were to sort of like crudely, based off my experience, kind of place diabetics in the three categories based off your care, there's like the one tier where, you know, that's that's the non-compliant tier, right? That's that's the tier where we just sort of rudimentally, you know, see what your weight is, do a quick kind of insulin uh, calculation based off of that, and you know, maybe we give you normal insulin that human seventy thirty, maybe we just give you lantus and just kind of say, you know, good luck, right? Like you're not bringing blood sugars in, your A one C is crazy, and you know, we're we're just trying to 
not even prevent DK, just limit DK, right? Then there's that sort of middle tier where there's a little more interaction. Um, you're still sort of doing simple things, but you know, you're bringing in blood sugars. We're kind of making corrections as, as you go, but it's, it's still not kind of as ideal as it can be. And then there's like that last tier where, right, we're, we're looking at every, you know, we're, we're getting CGM printouts. We're, we're sort of, you know, doing a lot of micro changes. We're thinking about augmenting uh, changes. We're thinking, you know, very closely about pump versus non-pump and Simulin and, you know, even um, like uh, uh, SGLT2 and everything like that, right? And so where I feel like that, that unconscious bias we talked about early on can fit is sort of where in those three tiers you, you, you become. Right. So for me, even though I am black, my mom's a pediatrician and she just doesn't play that. So from the moment I was diagnosed, you know, I was on the pump right away. I got the best care. Shout out to Texas uh, Children's Medical Center. Um, you know, I, I knew that everything was, was, was going to be OK. But when I was in my kind of early 20s, right, I'm, I'm fairly well educated. I'm not yet a doctor, but, you know, I know what's going on and I'm sort of up to my own care. That It sort of fell off a bit. And I remember having a really... Uh, conversation with a, a physician that really kind of spoke to me, right? My A1C, I think at that point in my early 20s was like in the high sevens, low eights. And um, I was I was in actually in urgent care for something non-related, but we were just sort of talking about my A1C. You know, he asked me for my history and, you know, I told him everything that I had going on and what my A1C was. And he was just kind of like, and this is a white guy, he was like, you know, it's a little racist that you haven't been held more accountable. You know, and I hadn't really thought about it like that because up to that point, like I had had, you know, all the support that I needed. But once I'm on my own and, you know, I don't, you know, you don't really know who I am when I just walk, walk into an urgent center, you know, as, as my insurance is kind of all through, um, you know, before what it is now. And and it really showed that, like, even though I've had privilege in different parts of my life, like I, I can't shed the skin that I have. And so if you see someone like me with an A1C, that's that's not too bad, but also could be a lot better right? Like what tier are you putting me in, right? Because I, I should be in that last tier, but if you're only putting me in that second tier, now I'm losing out and I'm having different outcomes than, than probably someone who didn't look like me, but had the same background as me. So I feel like that's sort of, you know, where the different biases come in and, and that's what we can do to sort of train providers better. So his, his argument or his, his point was, if you were white, they would be holding you more accountable for your higher A1C. It's, it's all about benefit of the doubt. You know, it's all about that sort of relationship that we call therapeutic alliance on this side of things, right? So are, are you able to form that therapeutic alliance? Are you able to hold your patients accountable and provide all the different levels of support, right? Doctors are humans too. And so we kind of go into every patient interaction, you know, with our own set of biases, our own expectations, our own obviously busy workload. How much of our time are we going to give to each case? If I already have these preconceived notions about who you are, maybe I give you, you know, I, I don't do a bad job although you guys definitely they did a bad job there's, there's no there's no doubt about it but you know you try to do the best you can but if you're if you're if your expectations are, are lower than they should be you're just going to do worse like that's again everyone's a human involved here and so what, what we need to try to figure out you know from from the side of the provider to the patient is how we can strengthen that therapeutic alliance so that people don't get mischaracterized so my situation was very similar to roy um my dad is a, is a physician and he diagnosed me. So he noticed the signs, he checked my blood sugar. He took me to the ER where I got the official diagnosis, um, but he diagnosed me. So I didn't have to worry about the misdiagnosis that I, I guess I could have gotten um, had he not caught it himself. Um, but the first thing he said, I have no, I don't, I don't remember 
who my official doctor was at my diagnosis um, or anything that they said, to be honest. Um, but what I remember him telling me was that this is your responsibility. Um, yes, you will have doctors, but don't expect them to give you the best care. Um, it's your responsibility. So ask all the questions you need to understand what you need to understand. Um, if they're not telling you what you're asking for, then find somebody else um, and be your own advocate. So that is what I have done for the last 26 years. I have been very fortunate to have some really high quality endos, um, but at the same time, I've done everything I could to learn as much as I can on my own so that when I go into my appointments, I'm asking them questions that I know they're probably not gonna ask me, um, or I'm giving them information that they may not take the time to ask about so that, I, so that they know that, oh, I'm in that last tier like this is this is person who's going to be actively involved in doing whatever they can do to make sure they're in the best possible, um, they're having the best possible outcomes. Um, I can't take for granted that they're not going to do whatever. Um, and if I don't know what I'm talking about, or if I'm not talking to them about the things that are uh, going to be most impactful in their treatment, they're going to call me. This this person's going to call me on it, and I've I've had to call some folks out like. Hey, what's 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 up with uh, these new CGMs or what's up with this pump? Um, you guys haven't you you didn't talk to me about this like what's what's the deal? And they've been oh yeah, you're right. These are the options. Um, and unfortunately, like you you shouldn't have to do that. I agree. You should be able to trust that your your physician, your your healthcare providers are going to provide you the everyone the best possible care. Um, but like you said, right you know, doctors are people too. And they're just trying, they, they've got a huge workload and they're trying to get uh, as many people through as they can and provide them uh, the best possible care. And so, yeah, some, some people will take, uh, take some shortcuts there. And I'm gonna give up the game a little bit too, real quick. Sorry to cut you off. No, but, go ahead. You know, especially as we talk about type one diabetics, like growing up and becoming adults or even being diagnosed as adults, they're just, you know, that, that's, that's just a place where the healthcare lacks knowledge, obviously. Like, so if you're going to a pediatric hospital, pediatrician, I mean, that's sort of, you know, definitely built into the training. They're well aimed to, to, to handle that. But, you know, adult emergency departments, you know, adult, you know, uh, internal medicine residents that are, that are on the service, I mean, very, a, a lot less training on that front. And so like us as diabetics just Plain no more in a lot of cases. Like obviously there, are, you know, a lot of things that the doctors will know more about. But if we're talking about, you know, how to work an individual pump, you know, all the different sort of uh, nuances when it comes to basils and everything like that. Like that's, you know, that that's 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 lacking there. So you know, it's it's really important in the day of social media to make sure that you know we as diabetics sort of know what's going on and we can kind of bring that then to our adult providers. Um, but, you know, it's something that, that's very important. It's something that I don't think is talked about a lot because we think about, I mean, it used to be called juvenile diabetes for Christ's sake. So, you know, it, even though we've now realized that, okay, like this is a disease that affects a lot wider range of ages of folk, you know, that there's still a, a, a discrepancy in, in the training. I think that it's interesting um, when we talk, like, especially for you, Shaw, and for you, Dr. Collins, 
that you come from a background that is a bit more privileged than the average black person diabetic. So I, and when we talk more about like, Hey, the diabetic themselves owning it and doing that research and getting that information, like Shaw said, it's not the responsibility of the patient. And I wonder if when Chelsea was diagnosed about 30 years ago, it wasn't as easy to access that information. So if Chelsea can tell us a little bit more about how his diagnosis was and, and maybe if there was any racial, just like not paying attention to him that came from it, because we know that those resources of the internet weren't available back then like that. Yeah, Cause I was, um, <laughs> let me take you back a little while. Um, take us back, take was, us back. I think the year was 1988, 89. Um, I was diagnosed by a, by a urologist because I was going to the bathroom just all the time. And my roommate literally went behind my back and set up an appointment with a urologist for me because he didn't know what was going on. Um, and so went to the urologist, got diagnosed, was in the hospital for like a week. I was literally in the, in the hospital at the hospital where that I actually worked in at the time. Uh, I had uh, health insurance, um, which you know, back, I mean, I'm not talking like the dark ages, but compared to, you know, today, um, that was, that said a lot that I actually had, um, you know, full health care. And that helped me, you know, get the proper treatment. Now, at the time, <clears throat> uh, I think I was in a hospital for like a week. I started out on insulin. Um, I, I think I run the gamut as far as the insulins that I work with. I started out on the, the 70, 30s, like you said, it was crap. Um, fast forward, I had, I was on Lantus. I've done the Novolog, Humalog, uh, clear, cloudy, whatever you got, uh, pins, uh, and eventually the pump. Um, but at the time of my diagnosis, I didn't, I mean, I, I had access to healthcare going to mostly primary care doctors. Um, and I didn't really know that much about endocrinologists at that time, but nobody really brought it up. Um, so I didn't really, it took me many years of doing the best I can with very little resources, because obviously we didn't, didn't have the internet at the time. Um, any support group was a face-to-face was -face support group. And oftentimes I was the youngest one in there. Um, you know, I, when I walked into one, it, was, it looked like I walked into a bingo room because everybody there was like in their 60s and 70s. And so and here I was 25, 26 years old. And so, um, you know, fast forward to when I eventually lived in Atlanta for many years and I developed um, diabetic retinopathy. I had um, blood leaks in both eyes. I had vitrectomies in both eyes. Um, the vision in my right eye right now is gone. Um, and that was around the early 2000s uh, when that happened. And at the time when it happened, I didn't have uh, decent healthcare. I had to just drive around with, my, with blood in my eye for like a year before I actually got a job to where I could um, have the surgery to get it fixed. And then after that one was fixed and the other one went. So, and this was around, like I said, the early 2000s, um, there was no, I mean, Facebook was still obviously being worked on at the time. Um, and it wasn't until around 
2008, I think, 2009 maybe, is when I actually discovered that there were other people with diabetes on social media, whether it was, you know, whether I came across somebody on MySpace before I actually started transitioning to, to Facebook. And I just met all these other people that had it that were talking about it. Because prior to that, nobody talked about it. I didn't even, now you got to understand the time when I was diagnosed, I didn't know anybody that had diabetes, or at least nobody told me that they had diabetes. So I had nothing to really bounce ideas off to learn anything. Everything that I had was, you know, in these pamphlets that they gave me when I was in the hospital. So um, the prior that I had gotten my pump for the first time around 2005, um, prior to that, I mean, the insurance companies would practically hang up on you when you even talked about a pump. Uh, and the doctors rarely even brought it up when you went to see your doctor. They Because I think, and in hindsight, I'm thinking, well, you know, he probably couldn't afford it or anything, which is true at the time. I couldn't afford it because obviously the insurance company wasn't going to pay for it. So now as it pertains to whether I think whether um, the doctors were uh, racist in their approach to treating me, here's the, here's the golden nugget about racist uh, attitudes. You got to prove it. The minute you call somebody racist, what are they going to say? No, I'm not. So there's your stalemate. You can't prove somebody's thought process. And oftentimes, even if people do something racist, whether they're black, white, whatever, they oftentimes don't even realize it. They don't take into consideration how that other people feels or anything of that nature. So racism is a hard thing to have to prove. Just because somebody used an N-word to my face doesn't necessarily mean that they even realize they're being racist. I can call them on it, but they can still come back and say, well, no, I'm not. So I don't know what these doctors' mindsets were. My thing is, once I found the, um, the online community and found that support, I became you know, more of an advocate for myself. And I started being more diligent in my care and holding these doctors responsible. Um, I've had doctors that, you know, that will sit down and, you know, we'll have a, an appointment and I'll sit there and talk to the guy for half an hour, just about either a little bit of everything. You know, when I started advocating, we would, I'd sit in and have a talk for about 45 minutes with my endocrinologist about, you know, advocating. And then I had another doctor, he would sit there and just stare at his computer the whole time I'm talking to him. You know, eventually I was like, you know what, let me just make an appointment with your nurse practitioner because she's actually talking to me right now. So you, you go in and you go, you go play Minesweeper, whatever the hell it is you're doing on a computer over there. And so it was a long road, I guess you could say, to where I am now, um, to where, I'm, uh, where I have no qualms about speaking up about um, the things that I'm seeing in the diabetes online community or just in general uh, as it pertains to uh, race and the connection with diabetes. Um, because I was out, you know, I was out in the wilderness at one point, but now, you know, I can, um, I can safely say that um, I have a different mindset now and I have a different attitude as it, uh, with dealing with things like this. Um, I don't, I have no problem. I don't bite my tongue about it because I don't see it, I have to. I think we all know that. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the whole problem is 
these these folks online that are actually just ignoring us, they that's what they want us to do. They want us to just stay quiet, be passive, and just go along just so they can not feel bad about themselves. Well, guess what? I'm gonna make you feel bad about yourself. If I gotta make you cry, I'm gonna do it. That's, that's it is what it is. I feel that. And um, if these doctors, if they wanna, you know, you know, jump strong, well, guess what? If you're pressured down that you can't see X amount of patients and all this kind of stuff and you bogged down, it's a whole lot of work. Well, guess what? You knew the job, damn job was dangerous when you took it. Hey, I mean, got every, I got all the respect for healthcare workers, but you know, don't come at me with my one eye and tell me that it's hard for you. But I got some stories for you, and that's just the way I roll. And so, the, the diabetes online community, in, in general, I think, really saved me because it actually gave me the uh, the ability to speak out. To, to take better care of myself, to actually, this now I've gotten my education that I should have gotten 30 years ago. Now, because that, that stuff wasn't available back then. I would have had to go into the library or something and just you know, roll the dice and meet somebody with, with diabetes or find a, a doctor that's willing to sit down and talk to me. Um, but like I said, you know, as far as any racial disparities I may have experienced, I don't know. I really don't know. And I, even to this day, I don't know what people are thinking when they're, when they're talking with me. But I take pride in the fact that you may not be listening to me, but you're going to hear me. And <laughs> I can leave if you don't want to hear it, but that's fine. I'll, it'll be taken care of. And I think that's one of the things that we as, as the, uh, the Black and Brown community need to do. We need to guess in a sense, huddle our masses and start building on our own and building our own. Because we've been, every one of us has been reached out to all summer and that's all well and good. But you also notice that a lot of that just kind of went down the drain. It just weaned off and you see where that went. So now here we are again. So now it's time that we start building our own platforms and start reaching out to these communities, the folks that aren't, the folks that aren't able to get on Zoom like us right now, the folks right down the corner from you that may be living with diabetes and can't, may, you know, they may not have the access, you know, even though they don't realize that they have the world in their pocket on their phone, because all of that is right there. And the that's, some, right there. that's something that I think I, I've mentioned before, sort of keeps me up at night. That's the phrase that I use is that the the you know the the JDRF statistics about the number of people in the United States with type one diabetes one point six million. Uh, there are not one point six million people with diabetes on Instagram. There just aren't flat out. Uh, maybe not even like throughout the world uh, even. So that global population is much much higher. Um, you know you look at the even the largest diabetes accounts online are are you know not in the the triple digit or the six figure range right. So they're uh, Let's just say a theory that I have is that there are a hundred thousand connected people with diabetes on Instagram. So even if all those people were in the United States and they are not, uh, that would be less than 10% of the total population. So how do we reach those people? Um, and I think, you know, the representation aspect is a big part of that as well. How many people are opting out because they don't see themselves. Um, and I think we earlier talked about tokenism. 
Uh, I also want to focus a little bit on stereotyping of black people in media as either very poor uh, and sort of destitute or very successful as athletes or entertainers and sort of the middle class totally underrepresented uh, in mass media. What about, you know, in the diabetes community, just black people that are just normal, uh, you know, normal in like black people working and living in the U.S.? Uh, I love this. <laughs> I'm excited for you guys to be talk to talk on the subject of the magical Negro not existing. Like somebody, oh, please. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean it's it, that whole ass the, the whole like you said the magical Negro syndrome that we have in this country that's been shoved down our throats through mainstream media, whether it be the movies, television. There's something so just so comforting about a black person, you know? Why do you, why do you think that it took this long to get that bandana off Angel Mama's head? To get her <laughs> off the box? Why do you think it took so long? You know when they actually, you know, actually they just took Angel Mama off the box completely. But prior to that, you know, you notice she didn't have that bandana on her head, right? Like she originally <laughs> did back in the day. You know when they took that bandana off? In the 80s. They took that off. It took them all the way to the 80s to get that off her head. Now it took it this long to get her off the box. Kelsey, we all know Aunt Mammy makes the best food, so. Exactly. Uh. <laughs> Ain't nobody made cream of wheat by that black man on that box right there. Okay? Because <laughs> there's nothing more <laughs> that this is what we do. This is, I mean, this is, you go back to date back in the 50s when Hattie McDaniel was playing Beulah. You, you look it's, Norman Lear changed television, but you know his portrayal of good times, that was entertaining to see black folks shucking and jiving, scratching and surviving, moving on up to the east side. That was, that was comforting. It was like, it's like macaroni and cheese and cornbread on Sunday morning, you know, Sunday afternoon. It is, I mean, it is what it is. And that's, that's, this is what it is. This is what this country is about. So are you saying it's mammy syndrome? Is that what you're trying to tell me right now? We love a mammy. Call it, you can is call that... it hope syndrome. We love comfortable black people. We call love... it bag advance syndrome. Bring me a comfortable Negro so I can have it around me to make me feel better about myself. And so I don't it's... feel uncomfortable or scared. Like, yeah, exactly. like, like you think Ooh. about like, Okay, like think about the portrayal of like an Aunt Jemima, and then you think of like let's call it a modern times Meg the Stallion, who is like powerful, yeah. throws her body out there, like doesn't care what people think, and people are afraid of her. People like, hate people her, hate her because she is so like outspoken. And you could, I mean, obviously, you couldn't like never put that on a pancake box or a syrup bottle. Same, it's like, the same with Dave Chappelle. But like, it's like, it's that, it's that docile, like, oh, it's not somebody who will talk back to me or make me think or make me like, like re reaffirm my ideas about people and the world. It's like, I just want to see the safe thing that isn't going to make me question anything about my comfortable bubble. And, and like- this is why when folks make these comments like they did on Juneteenth on their little Instagram, that is why, because you post their buttons. Wait a minute, where do you get up standing up for yourself like that? And see, this is the first thing. And the, and the next thing that comes along is when we decide to start creating our own, making our and own- that's what I And that's what I was gonna ask you about because Taylor does that a lot. So do, do they come for you, girl? 
constantly constantly but I'm also too dark so there's also that like Mila was talking earlier about a lot of the nonsense she gets but it's because I'm not if I was smaller if I was brighter if my hair was straighter if I was any bit closer to whiteness I wouldn't get the nonsense that I get on Instagram but I I don't get any of it and yeah, lot. and we say a lot of the same stuff sometimes. I don't. We and we, we talk about that a lot. Taylor and I, we have sat together on Instagram and just or called each other and Facetime for an hour and been like, "How is it that I say this and then you say this and no one says anything to you?" And I'm oh, it's because I'm a consumable, light-skinned black person, and and I, I hate to take up spaces that people like Taylor, people like Mila should be in because. I don't, I don't want it. Like, it's not, it's not right. And I don't want to make white people feel comfortable, especially with this mouth on me. I usually don't make them comfortable anyway. Well, well yeah. that's, that's true. But I think the, uh, <laughs> Rob knows, Rob knows. The, uh, yeah. I use you as a weapon, frankly. Um, but the, um, it, it really like came to me, like when I was, I think in high school and there was this cut scene in family guy, I'm like outing myself as a person who used to watch family guy, which is just terribly embarrassing. Disgusting. But, they cut away and they and it was like the Allstate guy. And it was like Allstate, competitive rates, non-threatening black spokesman. Are you in good hands? And I was just like, whoa. It like flipped my eye upside down smile emoji. I was like, oh, that's what it is. Like he's black, but he's not too black that white people are going to be put off by him. And he's got that voice. He's so he's Morgan so Freeman. Right. Yeah. I mean, and then like you see like the commercials like Jake from State Farm, like Jake from State Farm is in your house. You're giving Jake from State Farm like free cuts of meat because he gave you a better deal on your car insurance, but you don't see the Allstate guy like sitting in people's homes. You see him. Jake from State Farm is black now. Yeah, he is. He still wears khakis though. He still wears khakis. So he's he, a lame. Like, he's the a lame. Are so like it's hilarious to me because like you see all of the other commercials and they're so like daunting, and then you have just like this this cute light skinned black guy that's like I'm Jake from State Farm. Let me save you some money, and like everyone's like, cool, come into my house. Like let's do this. Like let's play like, so with my son. And it's like what? Like it's it's that it's just like so interesting and i think we all see that but like i mean my husband's white and he'll like watch that commercial and he's like that's cute like i love that and i'm like well i have like several problems with this and here are all of them <laughs> and then he's like oh okay i get it and it's you know it's the same bubble it's like there are things that i point out to him or expose to him that he's like oh i never even understood that or saw that or and and that's just kind of where some people are which is really sad but they also so go three, attack mode when you when you there are three TV shows that I'm old enough. Chelsea probably remembers. I'm old enough to remember watching as a kid that were excellent representations of black people and families in media. There was uh, a different world. Oh yeah. Living single and the Cosby show. <clears throat> now, Eh, the Bill Cosby Cosby. show. It still, eh. it still stands for the time. No, like for the time, it stands. Because, but it's not yeah. relatable. None of us had a daddy doctor and a lawyer mama. Like, sorry, not all of us. That a doctor Roy. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, no, they were, because it, Me that's neither. But it was a... It was a let it was me a, let you make your point. Go ahead. It was, it was a respectable family with a mother and a father and some kids that were not acting a fool Fair. most of the time that were like operating in, in, in good standing. And then, you know, living single, again, some young black professionals doing well on their own. And it was good enough to copy and make friends, right? And then, you know- Talk about it. Say it, say it. (laughs) 
you know what I'm saying? And then um, they ain't listening. Yeah, a different world again. Young black people in college getting a higher education, like doing well for themselves, and yeah, they don't just they just don't make shows like that anymore. And um, how do you say that? But I raise you. Everybody hates Chris. I want to, I want to like, I'm 32. So I'm like in the middle. I, I want to say like the conversation that I've had with my brother and sister uh, recently in the, within the last like two years, we talked about the influence of black media's presence in our house through Disney, two Disney channel shows specifically. Number one, the famous Jet Jackson, which oh, we stand so all day. And uh, number two, smart guy, TJ Henderson, um, you know, a single dad, uh, black character, single dad, very like rare, I think in mass media at the time, especially in the late nineties, early two thousands. And like just the sort of osmosis effect of having relationships with black characters through your television set as a white person, I think just seeing those people and those like being a presence in your world affects how you treat people in your everyday life. This and is why... This is why historically, when you go back to the 50s uh, during Amos and Andy and why the NAACP lobbied to get that show off the air because of the representations they were putting on television about black people. It took years for that to, to go away. But it, but you think about it it, it, it didn't really because you realize Cicely Tyson was on a show, uh, I think it was in the... 60s call, I think it was called The Lawyers. She was on that show and she wore her hair natural, a little short afro. Guess who gave her hell about it though? The NAACP. Because she was wearing her hair natural. And then you you have to move forward to to like um to Julia in the late 60s, early 70s with Diane Carroll. Here's a single black mother as a nurse, and then you move forward and then, then you hit the Norman Lear era where we've got good times, but we also have the Jeffersons. George Jefferson's actually owning his own business. It took all these tiny little steps. That's what brought us to shows like the Cosby show and the different world because none of this stuff, it, no, nobody ever seen this type of stuff before, especially like the different world when black people were going to college. You know, we were, people are thinking about, you know, college is like Animal House. Eating, stuff like that. Stuff like that. Normalize you know? normal black people. Yeah. And so this is, this is all this stuff, <laughs> it's been coming down the pike for years. And it's the same thing with athletics. You know, same thing with definitely in music, in, in, in art, I mean, I mean, you think about Basquiat for crying out loud. People didn't know he was black till now. Beethoven was black too, I think, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I think I want, I want to go back like normalize normal black people. I want to say like, I want to go a step further for this program is like normalize normal black people with diabetes. Yeah. Like there's no, with no family history, with no other, you know, pre-existing conditions. Why not? Everybody else, we, we accept everybody else. Sorry, say that again, Taylor. No, I was just gonna say, or before we're like dying of some dying period, 
or having some kind of awful complications. Because I think something I notice and it drives me crazy about the diabetes community is that we are, even when we're like marginally represented, we're shown in a stereotype. We're, we're a super buff athlete. Like, I just want to see like a fluffy black man. Like, why is that so hard? Like, why, why don't I see more fluffy black guys? They don't because they can't look diabetic. So they have to be big athletes who work out 12 times a week. Um, you don't see, you, you see very few, few like normal sized black women. Like everyone is either super tiny, again, an athlete. You have to be ultra feminine, sing, dance, cook. Like, why do we always have to dance for white people? Why? Why is our not just having diabetes enough? Because it doesn't seem to be. So I, I think it's a good question. And I, and I, I you know, as we kind of sort of come to the end of this, of our time together tonight, let's have that discussion. Why isn't it enough? Why isn't it enough? Why do, why do black people with diabetes have to dance? I, I don't think that it's enough because they want us, it's not, I don't know, it's not interesting enough for white people to watch us just be black. Like, it's like, oh, I don't see myself. So this isn't fun. This isn't interesting anymore. I no longer want to pay attention. I also Somebody think else? The, there's this like perception, especially like I never felt this when I was like labeled type two, but I feel this like very often now that you have to be just like this extraordinary person with type one because it's like, like you have to fly to the moon and be able to dunk on people and like just have all these special abilities because it takes it takes that stigma off of you that like you're not limited by your illness. And I think a lot of us are limited by our illnesses and it's hard to talk about and it's hard to say that and no knock on people who are extraordinary and do extraordinary things and that being a part of their lives. But I think like oftentimes it's, it's again that discomfort like people don't want to see someone with complications and then like god forbid you're black with complications it's like you are just such a sad story and a downer and like I don't want to talk about it and that is so unfair because it it misrepresents I think people in the community and I think that's just it like and and there's this really interesting conversation I try to stay away from twitter because uh, it gets a little I was going to say this, bring up the same thing. Absolutely. Yeah. The, this disability conversation. Yeah. There was a, a great conversation about disabilities and someone who essentially said like, well, I don't feel limited at all by my diabetes and I can do anything that I want and there's nothing that holds me back. And then this kind of like other side of the coin where people were like, oh no, like I, because I have to think about what I eat at every meal because I can't like join the army or I can't like fly a plane or, you know, like all of, all of these things came up and like some very extreme things and some very like common things, but it was kind of like the person who was like really adamant that diabetes didn't limit them in anything did not want to hear that people feel like they could be labeled as disabled for having diabetes, but also that it can limit parts of your life and can limit like some of the enjoyment in your life. And I think that that's just kind of like, I think why when we show up in the world and we're imperfect or we're not musicians or dancers or something that's like entertaining to people, it's uncomfortable for them because they don't have something that they feel like keeps their attention. And they feel like that story is too sad to listen to, even though it's just as valuable of a story as somebody who is all of those things. Yeah, it, I, goes, back, it goes back to the question about media, right? So because black people are always portrayed as athletes or entertainers or 
super ratchet or whatever the case may be like again if we're not dancing or entertaining or playing sports or super ratchet if we're just normal black people it's it twerking (laughs) it's not it's not it's not exciting enough and that's why it feels like we always need to be extraordinary and oftentimes dancing it's really interesting when you see extraordinary people i'm sorry sorry to step on you there taylor like it happens with extraordinary people too, like LeBron James and Colin Kaepernick, I think are peak examples of when the, the minute they start to dedicate any time, energy, money to something other than sports, everybody comes out of the woodwork, like shut up and dribble. And I mean, it, like the, the sitting president of the country t- tweeting nasty things about these people. I mean, imagine being a black woman, Serena Williams. I mean, you say LeBron, you say Colin Kaepernick, but like, then we talk about people who are legitimately the best. Like this person is incredible. Like this is so like outperforms anyone and y'all still talk shit on her. So it's like, and then she almost died. She almost died because doctors didn't take her seriously. She's rich. She's successful. She's someone who is in peak shape. And when she was like, something is wrong with my body. No one listened. Yeah. And that for me is being a black woman in America. Like comfortable black people back. I'm always uncomfortable. Mama back. I can be comfortable. Stop making all this noise. Stop crying. Stop all this marching and stop all this, you know, acting like you're uncomfortable because I didn't do it. My ancestors did it. I, didn't. I mean, honestly, at this point, it's it's the it's the question of because, and I say, I've said this on a few of the other panels and I do say this to Raw all the time too, but it's like most of the people who listen to us and our audience is, there's a lot, it's a lot of white people. So if, for the ones that are listening to this, like what is the takeaway for them? What is something that you want to make sure like that you said today that they, they get from this? Because while I know that white people can do their own research, I think that stories and people's experience are so valuable. Um, so if you could, everyone, um, just maybe tell me how what you want them to take away from this. Chelsea, you can go first. I love I love your take on everything, man. <laughs> I gotta hang out with Chelsea more often. That's my takeaway from this. Yeah, I mean, what I would like, something just simple. Listen. All you gotta do is listen, because if you the more you listen, a lot of it's gonna start to make sense. And understand that much of what you know has been a lie, not your fault, because their there, there systems have been created to keep you from understanding these hurdles that have been placed um, to prevent people of color from advancing in this country. So you need to understand that when we scream owl, we are not crying wolf. Because we're actually screaming owl because my mother and father screamed owl and you didn't listen to them. My grandfather and grandmother screamed owl, you didn't listen to them. So I'm still screaming owl because nobody listened to them. Now I need you to listen to me. So all you have to do is listen. And like I always say, you may not listen to me, but you will hear me because I'm not going to stop talking and I'm not going to stop making noise. And that's one of the things that we need to do uh, as a community is we need to start putting the information online, but also we need to get out in the streets and go old school. Okay. We need some Fred Hamptons. We need some Bobby Seals. 
we need some Angela Davises to get in the streets and get back out there in front of in people's faces and start having these conversations with our own people to get us all empowered. All of us got empowered for some reason or another, or somehow or another. And so we need to go ahead and pass that torch, pass that baton to other folks. There's, there's kids out there that don't even realize that they either have diabetes or they may have it and don't know where to turn to because their parents may not have their education. So those folks need to be talked to and they need to be empowered. And so as far as like it's the takeaways, all you gotta do is stop talking about how you feel and start listening. It's, a, it's such a hard question also, because like on one hand, like it's not our jobs to get people to do the work that they should be doing. But on the other hand, we also have to because some people don't do the work. Um, so I think from my perspective, I, I think examining your biases and understanding more about why and when they happen um, and like getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Uh, so like if you're sitting in a room full of white people and they're making a decision that affects the lives of black and brown people, maybe be the first person to raise your hand and ask like, did we ask this community what they wanted? Did we ask them what they thought? Did we get insight as to whether or not this is the right thing to do? Or is this like a savior complex thing because we feel like we have power so we can do something about it. Um, I know like a lot of my like other blogger friends didn't necessarily like think that way or ask those questions. And so they would get invited to an event and they would like share pictures from after and I would be the first person to be like, you know, everybody in that photo is white, right? Like you didn't think to ask me if I wanted to come or ask who's all gonna be there. Like you just, you just were like, oh, let me go and let me take pictures and like, let it look homogenous. And, and so I think like having, having that like switch in your mind and that develops over time, like that's not something that happens overnight, but figuring out like when those moments do happen and knowing that like you as a person with some privilege because of your skin color can be the first person to kind of stand up and say like, hey, that something is wrong with this picture. And it doesn't have to be like, you know, standing on the table and saying it in front of everybody. It can be something that like, if you have proximity to power, talk to someone about it and say something about it. Um, but I think that's, that's a major first step is just acknowledging it and making other people aware. Um, because I think it happens like way more often than we think without people even thinking that there's a problem and it may just be where you are. So you think it's normal, but it's, it's good to reflect and remember that like a room like that or a place like that is not normal. Um, and you have to think about what you can do to change that to ensure that there are more people at the table and more voices in the room. I think, oh man. Yeah, it is a really hard question. I think that the thing that I would ask is for people to care about more than just themselves, um, to, to, to love others as yourself, right? So if you, if you love others, as yourself, like you're going to listen to them when they have uh, concerns or gripes or just talking about their personal experience with diabetes and the things that they've dealt with with their diagnosis or with their 
healthcare providers or having access to the supplies and the insulin that they need, whatever. Um, you're going to listen to that. You're going to look for ways to help them. Um, if you care about others more than yourself, when you are invited to speak on a panel or to attend a conference or um, be in a position of power, you're going to look for other people who weren't invited and bring them along because you care about them and you want them to have the same or similar experiences as you. Um, if you care about other people more than yourself, <clears throat> you're going to go out of your way to um, try and make sure that things are equitable. Um, you're not going to just sit back and be like, yep, I'm chilling, this is great for me, sucks for y'all. Um, you're gonna do what you can to improve, you know, the, the, the experiences of other people who, who don't have the same privileges as you. So yeah, it's, it's, it's love others as yourself because we know that you can love yourself. You've, you've been doing that for a while. So people ask me this a solid bit because I rant about white people on Instagram a lot. So this is, this is a question people ask me all the time. And the only answer I have is an uninformed alley isn't an alley at all. You don't help anyone if you are uneducated and just kind of strapping on your like white savior best and hopping in and you don't know what you're talking about and you haven't been listening and you haven't been learning. Um, Chelsea said it really well earlier. Most of us are dealing with inter intergenerational trauma and issues that have come down from our parents and our parents' parents and we're fighting those systems. And if you have no concept of what it is we're fighting against, you can't help us fight it. And a lot of times what I see is people with really good intentions who are trying to be really sweet and be really helpful are reinforcing stereotypes. They're continuing to like perpetuate narratives that hurt us. So I think before or in the process of trying to do things, make sure you know the history, make sure you're informed about the issues. They're easy things you can do to learn. I don't think you need to go do like a deep dive through any kind of academic archives if you don't want to, if that's not your thing, but follow black people. like make sure that you're surrounded by a variety of black voices. Consume black media other than rap music. Like black is just fine. It occasionally has great life lessons. Like watch things like that. It's, it's not hard to inform yourself. So at least start from there. Cause I'm, it's, it's not helpful when you're just like black people are poor and that's why they're all dying. I think like that's not it. Thinking about some of the stuff that like I see happen to Taylor and one of the things that I saw that just like made me infinitely angry was when somebody basically took what she did and her words and like reposted it on their own profile for clout instead of amplifying her voice and saying like this is where I learned this, this is where I got this this is a person that you need to listen to when it comes to issues like this. And I just like, I don't know, I, I wish like all the wrath upon them because I was like, why would you take somebody's like lived experience and then like post this as a white person and act like you know everything. And like, it's okay to share what you learn. It's okay to share what you think you know or what you do know, but it's not okay to take someone else's sentiment and somebody else's words and post them 
basically because you want to get likes on Instagram. So she I, really took her stuff, right? Like, didn't she just, didn't she crop your name out of it, girl? Like, wasn't it bad, bad? Like she really there, thought there, your there life was a few. meme. Yeah. They're, they're very cute. We're very yeah. convenient props sometimes yeah. for people. Colonization yeah. takes mean. many forms. Instagram is like, God, the like new forms of colonization on that app. I swear <laughs> God, like the cap on this app the cap on that app. So yeah, I, that, that to me is like another very important one. It's like amplify people of color and be, even if you have a larger platform or a larger voice, it takes $0 and zero time to tag the person that you got the idea from and give the credit where the credit is due and let people learn from a reliable source. But that's a different conversation for a different day. Can I change I my TLDR? <laughs> I can change my TLDR to move, bitch, get out the way. <laughs> Taylor, whenever that did happen, did that person apologize? Whatever, what, how did that go down? Did they apologize to you or did they just take it down or what? I think they may have just archived the post as far as I know. Then someone got more creative about it and just went and like high key copied and pasted like responses from the medical guide that I posted or like things from the study. And I was just like, okay like it's not worth it to me to argue with somebody about it i'm just like okay it's not so, worth it to you but i have time so please i was about yeah, to say like, run me the at run me the at because i think you already did i think you've already run me this at before that's why i'm saying that but yeah i just it drives me crazy this stuff this is just another example of it's just white stuff. Like they take credit for things that we do. And it's just mind blowing, mind boggling. I'm glad you guys brought it up. Wow. Yeah. But also like the double standard in our reaction too, because I know Taylor, like if you were to like read these people for filth, like they would be like, well, she's an awful rude person and she's not collaborative and she's mean. And she is this, this, and this, and this, and no one would ever think like, well, she's defending her work and she is standing up for herself in a situation that deserves standing up for. And so I, I think that that's also a, a difficult part of it is like, as much as this stuff can happen and you know, like all of us are willing to come to your side at like any time at any moment, the perception of what defending yourself in a community that is hostile to you at times is also just like another kind of like a side to it it's like is it even worth my time and my energy to like fight for myself because people aren't going to take it out for you anyway all my life I had to fight (laughs) all my life labeled as mean as angry like constantly that's the message I get you're so negative you're so mean I'm so angry and I'm like no I just want you to know what you're talking about because I truly believe we could be better but you're choosing not to be and it's a problem and I think it's a bigger issue like what I my advice would be believe black women and protect black women because that you know you the things that people say to black women they don't say to white women Uh, and the labels that are associated difficult angry combative um, are quickly thrown and i think chelsea said earlier you can't call somebody a racist because immediately their response is i'm not racist and I mean, even on the, we were talking about the JDRF posts earlier, these like very blatantly printed, posted public racist comments were like, I'm not racist. You guys are crazy. Uh, Look at you attacking me. All these people are coming out of the woodwork attacking me. That like doom loop of those things continuing to happen. There's something else you may want to keep an eye out too. Um, 
sort of like the saying goes, your skin folk ain't your kin folk. There's folks in the um, diabetes online community that ain't exactly allies. And they are out there undermining much of what we're doing. So keep your eyes and ears open because they, they're going to smile in your face. But at the same time, you know, they don't have your back. Because I'm looking, you know, as far as like whether it, you know, white folks or uh, black folks, anybody uh, is willing to work with us. I'm looking, most folks are looking for allies. I'm looking for accomplices. Mm. Okay. Because mm. an ally will pat you on the back and let you walk into a burning building by yourself. But an accomplice is going to go in there with me. So that's what I'm looking for. Absolutely. Well, I, I want to thank you guys all for your time today, for your effort, uh, for discussing things I think uh, that, are, that are difficult, very heavy, um, and sharing that with us today. I appreciate you all, and uh, you know, I appreciate you being part of More Than a Diabetic. Thank you for listening to More Than a Diabetic on Diabetics Doing Things. We are going to continue this four-part series all the way through January 2021. You can find all of the content that we posted about More Than a Diabetic on diabeticsdoingthings.com slash more than a diabetic with dashes in between each word. So more dash than dash a dash diabetic. And on Instagram, you can use hashtag more than a diabetic and see all of the little micro content that we're putting out there, all of the individual show graphics and all of the Instagram handles of our amazing guests. So keep it locked for more, more than a diabetic here on Diabetics Doing Things.